This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Matt Martin uh, here with another great East Trauma Cast. Uh, we have a fantastic topic today and, and uh, two great uh, guests with us. We're going to be talking about ECMO, which, which I think for many of us is kind of a black box that we, we have some concept of but don't have a lot of real in-depth knowledge. Uh, I'm joined here by my co-moderator, Dave Morris. Thanks for joining us, Dave. All right. Thanks for being here. All right, and uh, I'd like to introduce our two guests, and uh, we'll have them introduce themselves, and why don't we uh, start with you, Jay. I'm Jay Meneker. I am the medical director of the Lung Rescue Unit, which is a dedicated VV ECMO unit at the RMS Coward Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. I am emergency medicine trained with subspecialty training in surgical critical care and spent about nine years in a cardiac surgery ICU uh, learning to take care of ECMO patients. All right, um, Dave. Uh, David Zonis. I'm a trauma uh, surgeon at uh, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, and I'm also the uh, so I'm the medical director for the Trauma Surgical Intensive Care Unit, and I'm the founding medical director for our adult extracorporeal life support program, which we manage both uh, cardiac and respiratory failure VA and VV support. And uh, and you had some prior military ECMO experience, isn't that right, Dave? I did. Uh, so I spent uh, um, a number of years on active duty, and uh, uh, both in San Antonio at the at the beginning of the, of the ECMO program there, and then spent the balance of my career um, uh, mostly in Europe, uh, which is really where I got mostly engaged in, in ECMO and was part of the um, what we call the acute lung rescue team, which was a uh, a, a long range transportable uh, program to to take patients and cannulate kind of out in the field and then move them all over the world. And uh, that's kind of really how I got mostly involved with uh, with ECMO. All right, great. And, and before we start the, the discussion, I, I just want to ask each of you, you know, how you came to, to end up on this trauma cast as, you know, a, an expert in ECMO because it's not, it's not really a defined career path. There's no ECMO, you know, residency. Uh, and most of us don't do ECMO. So why don't we start with you, Jay, of, of just how, you know, you're, you're an emergency medicine trained physician and now you're doing ECMO. Yeah, so, you know, as I said, I did emergency medicine here in Baltimore, and then I stayed and did the uh, surgical critical care fellowship in, in shock trauma, and I sort of never left. Part of my initial job was I worked in the cardiac surgery ICU here at the university, and that was primarily the place that we took care of patients on VV ECMO. Uh, at that point, the program wasn't very big. Trauma did not have a lot of patients, and the trauma center and the university sort of took care of patients very differently. And about Three years ago, uh, between a lot of people, including Dr. Sclea and a bunch of people, they decided to sort of cohort the VV ECMO patients between the university and the trauma center, and we actually opened a, a six-bed unit in the trauma center in, their, in our new building, and I uh, was uh, asked to, to run that as the medical director as having a significant amount of experience, you know, taking care of the patients in the uh, cardiac surgery ICU as well as some of the trauma patients. So it sort of just sort of melded all my experiences, and, you know, it's one of those things sort of in the right place at the right time for a great opportunity. All right. How about you, Dave? Yes. You know, similar to Jay, it was sort of just being in the, the right place at the right time. So, uh, you know, I, you know I, I did a 
and as part of my critical care training, um, spent some time at, at the pediatric hospital and really didn't have an understanding. You know, it was very complicated um, kind of how those patients were managed on ECMO, but it was always very interesting to me. And so I tried to spend some time there, but it was really once I started working after fellowship and just having to deal with such patients. And as I previously mentioned, we were in a situation where we needed to move these really sick patients that we just couldn't use conventional critical care support, um, and we were basically maxed out on ventilator support or maxed out on cardiac support. And so um, I, I happened to be in the right place at the right time working with some friend, uh, with some colleagues in in uh, near Munich and uh, was trained up and, and have ever since has, has really just taken it on as a project. And, and, and uh, now being in Portland, um, we didn't have a program. There was always this desire to um, create an adult program separate from the from the pediatrics uh, um, ECMO program, and so it was a great opportunity to establish uh, a new um, clinical program, and uh, it's really, really taken off, and, and, you know, if you just look at the literature, um, these centers are opening everywhere, so I think it's, this is a really important topic, especially for those that are coming, you know, early in their careers or, or in fellowship or even in late in their residency, that they really have a good idea about what this can offer, to, to especially to trauma patients. So that's a perfect segue since you mentioned probably everyone should have a good idea of it. I think it's a it's a black box to a lot of people, even fellowship trained critical care physicians. So so real quickly I want you to give me the ECMO for dummies summary. And and why don't we uh and, and just explain you know, exactly what that means of you're putting someone on, on ECMO and you know the blood's going here to here. And why don't we start with Jason since you're at the V V ECMO Center, why don't you just explain V V to us and then Dave will have you explain how VA is different. Uh you know, so for VV, I describe it as dialysis for the lungs. You know, so this is really people who are just pure respiratory failure, no real evidence of cardiac failure. They do, although they do have some, usually from their hypoxia. But essentially, the the blood is taken out of uh, usually one of the femoral veins. It is put through a circuit, which not only provides oxygen but also clears the CO2. It is then returned uh, through another vein, usually the right IJ, although there are multiple different configurations that are uh, possible. And essentially, the blood is returned to the right atrium. So it is essentially an external circuit that provides all the functions of the lung while the lung recovers or heals from whatever the uh, insult is, whether it's trauma or medical. And so does the blood have to be returned to, you know, a, a central vein or, or directly into the heart? Uh, yeah, usually, as I said, it's either uh, you can return it into one of the femoral veins or usually the right internal jugular, or you can actually do central cannulation where people have returned the blood right into the uh, pulmonary artery. Obviously, that configuration is a little more um, involved. Okay, and, th and then what's happening to the blood extracorporeally? Uh, it goes through a circuit. Um, it goes through an oxygenator, as I said, essentially uh, provides oxygen to the blood. It goes through a warmer. You can temperature control uh, the blood, uh, or you cannot. It, it's up to you. Like sometimes we will manage the patient's temperature using the uh, external uh, heater on the system. And then it goes through a filter that essentially clears the CO2 uh, and then returns the blood back to the patient, and obviously it's very well oxygenated. When you look at the two cannulas side by side, one of them looks very dark, and that's the blood being taken out of the patient into the machine because it doesn't have very good oxygen. And then when you look at the blood returned into the patient after the circuit, it's obviously much redder. You can clearly see uh, the difference in the oxygenation levels. So, and, and I know it's very effective for oxygenation, and, and how effective is the CO2 removal side of it? 
Uh, it's very effective. Um, we have there's a dial that we call the sweep, which is essentially a dial from zero to ten. Although you can add actually add higher, you can go as high as you want in theory. Uh, but usually there's one in zero to ten. Um, the higher the number, the more sweep or the more CO2 you're clearing. Uh, when you're on zero, you're not performing any um, oxygenation or ventilation of the machine, and then it just becomes a big external circuit. So you don't want to put it on zero unless you want to. Um, but you know. The higher the number, so six, you're clearing more CO2 than you are when you're on a level of three. Um, and the machine, for the most part, is very effective. There are some patients that, as I said, you need to add an extra one and sometimes will go above 10. That is the rare case, but most of the patients, um, want up to 10 is usually effective. So you have the spinal tap machine that goes to 11? Correct. <laughs> we can go to 11. <laughs> Hey, uh, so Dave, then why don't you uh, take us through VA and how that's different? Sure. So so VA or veno-arterial support is just as it's described. So you remove blood from a large central vein. So typically it's going to be from the femoral vein. And then you, you, you run it through the same machine. It's actually configured exactly the same way. Um, the biggest difference is on the return side, you're going to return it to an artery. And so it's typically going to be um, either a femoral artery, which is a, probably the most common configuration for percutaneous access. And uh, but you can centrally cannulate patients, especially if they say they're in the operating room and they've had a sternotomy and you already have access to the heart. And this could be like a post-cardotomy cardiogenic shock. Um, you can essentially just centrally cannulate using really the same access you'd be using for doing cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, other ways of returning, you can go through an axillary artery if you don't actually have access. Um, but those are really just the biggest differences. I think physiologically, there's a really significant difference between VV versus VA. And because you're returning this blood back into an artery, it's going retrograde. And so this is the, this is really the biggest physiologic derangement that we see is that, you know, if you've got native cardiac function, it's moving in an integrated fashion. And then you've got this huge, you know, this non-pulsatile jet of blood that is moving retrograde. So at some point, those two are going to mix with each other. And um, and then that's sort of one of the really um, uh, areas that, have to, that you really have to um, monitor closely. So um, that's basically how it works. But in terms of the sweep and the, the blood flow, um, it, it all works about the same. And depending what device you use, uh, and there are several on the market, you can generate uh, anywhere from, you know, essentially no support to up to seven liters of blood flow uh, a minute. And so um, you can fully support the cardiovascular and the respiratory uh, system with, um, with, the, with veno-arterial support. So primarily you're really doing this for, you know, cardiogenic shock. You can also change the configuration around, and that's one of the nice things is anywhere you have access to a blood vessel, you can you just kind of keep adding in cannulas. And so if you have a patient who might be in, say, cardiogenic shock, and then they develop you know, severe ARDS on top of that, you can add in another cannula and basically create the VV circuit, and we call it VAV. And you can, you know, you can, there are multiple different ways to configure this so that you can basically fully support the patient um, through their critical illness. So, so in uh, the basic basic take home is VV for someone who has essentially normal cardiac function, and VA for somebody who has decreased cardiac function or cardiogenic shock. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. You know, as I said, I think people who require VV will often have some sort of cardiac dysfunction, but that is not their primary 
problem, and usually that results relatively quickly once they're well oxygenated. Okay, and Jay, and, and that's and that's a really good point, Jay, because you know we oftentimes will say, you know, we look at calls for, you know, oh, they need to be on VA, but honestly, if you put them on VV first and you just give oxygen back to the patient and their cells begin to work again, that cardiac depression often will go away, and they don't need as as invasive a of a, a treatment. Yeah, you know, we typically give our patients some inotropic support just sort of empirically and then follow echoes. And most of them have some sort of right heart dysfunction right as they go on VV ECMO. But usually within, I would say, the first three to five days once they're on, that right heart dysfunction goes away and we have the ability to wean off the inotropes. So, Jay, you, you mentioned that the, the name of your unit is the VV unit. So does that mean that you guys are not doing VA? Yeah, typically the VA ECMO patients are staying over in cardiac surgery. Um, we have done a couple, uh, but predominantly most of our VA patients are not trauma-related. We've done a couple trauma-related, and the ones that we've done are usually have direct cardiac injury as opposed to we just think they need cardiac support, and those patients have typically gone over to the cardiac surgery ICU because they just have more experience taking care of the VA ECMO patient. Okay. So, uh, so Dave, Dave Morris, um, are, are you yeah. guys doing ECMO in uh, Utah, or were you doing it uh, in Minnesota? Um, on very rare occasions, yes. I would say it's not a very common thing in the trauma or emergency surgery world, but but on occasion, yes. And who's doing it? The cardiac, cardiac surgeons? Surgeon. Is it the trauma yeah. surgeons? It's, it's cardiac surgery exclusively in the places okay. I've been. Okay. Well, let's uh, then let's get into uh, patient selection and who we should be doing this on. So, so obviously this is for somebody with an oxygenation problem. But uh, why don't you guys just tell us what are what are the key patient selection criteria that you use to say somebody needs to be on ECMO or should be on ECMO? So, I'll go first. So at Maryland. Um, we have a couple patient populations. Anybody who gets a traumatic pneumonectomy, part of our algorithm for that patient is to put them on VV ECMO in the operating room. Um, I think most uh, trauma surgeons will agree that, you know, it's one of those operations you need to do, sort of do up front uh, for them to have the best outcome. And over our experience here, as I said, that has sort of become part of our algorithm. So that is one patient population that we just empirically put on VV ECMO and let them settle out. Uh, there's been a lot of large discussion about really those patients should be on VA ECMO because of the, the acute right heart failure, but with the bleeding and the need to anticoagulate the VA ECMO circuits, we've elected to use VV, and it's actually worked out relatively well for us. Other patient populations somewhat become similar to, to non-trauma patients. You know, it's, it's whatever you decide is your maximum, maximal vent support. We use a lot of APRV here. So once we start getting to a P1 of 30 and maybe 60% on FiO2 is really where we start at least entertaining the idea of uh, using ECMO. Um, the other patients that we consider are patients that have like bronchopleural fistulas or some sort of um, disease process that doesn't allow you to really increase event support and just to let their underlying injury heal. So those patients sometimes we will put on ECMO to allow just lower driving pressures to let their injury heal. So is there is there any kind of scoring system you guys use or you just kind of eyeball it for each patient? Uh, we have some indicate we have inclusion and exclusion criteria um, for the trauma patients. You know we we have not used the Murray score um, specifically. We're really using FiO2 and and driving pressures uh, as more of our indication. All right, how about you, Dave? Yeah, so um, 
We, we, we too, so we do have the inclusion and exclusion criteria and, uh, we do use the Murray score. Um, but, uh, it's, you know, we, we also try to follow the, um, ELSO, the extracorporeal life support organization guidelines, although they're not really specific enough when it comes to the trauma patient. Uh, and so, and, and there's still a lot of questions out there about, you know, patient inclusion and patient selection. I think the biggest question when, when our team gets consulted, and the one I always ask, and I make sure everybody asks, is what is your exit strategy? Because I think, at least for, for VV ECMO, the assumption is that you're going to have lungs that are going to recover. For cardiac support, there better be an exit strategy because having a bridge to nowhere is is going to, one, it's going to kill your program, and two, you're, you're not doing the patient any any good. And so, you know, for cardiac support, does that mean that they can go on to have um, another mechanical assist device, so like an LVAD or a, an RVAD, or or are they a bridge to a cardiac transplant, um, or do you really think that this is, you know, if this is myocarditis, or you or you think that this is just post MI um, uh, injury, that there's going to be some kind of cardiac recovery? But um, so those are really the big. Criteria. I think for VV, it's a little bit more straightforward that they should have some recovery um, that's expected, unless they've got some, you know, terminal disease. Okay. Well, you mentioned the Murray score, so now you know you're going to have to explain that to us because I can guarantee you, uh, most of our listeners and, and including probably both our moderators don't know exactly what that entails. <laughs> you want to take? Uh, so the Murray score is a um, uh, a score scoring system um, that looks at um, sort of objectively what, uh, and you were going to ask me about this. i got to actually pull up the score. I have to do this each time. Just the general, what are the, what are the key variables? Yeah, so basically, what you're, so you're looking at oxygenation. You're looking at um, similar, you know, the infiltrates on a chest x-ray. So you want to have radiographic evidence. You want to have your PDF ratio. You're going to be looking at your mean airway pressures. And then there's a fourth one. And I'm the peak. Trying. The peak, peak, thank you. Peak level. Yeah. And so what it's supposed to do is, it, you know, it gives you some objective measure to to really quantify um, who should be offered therapy. And we usually say when it's a Mary score above, you know, two and a half greater than three, that that's just another, um, it's just another piece of data that helps you kind of point in the direction of being able to offer the therapy. And that score was used in the CSER trial, which was this large, you know, UK randomized controlled trial a few years ago, um, that they tried to use that as some objective way of using it for inclusion. We also can use the oxygenation index, which is just another, again, that came out of the pediatric world, but that's supposed to, that's another way to try to figure out how um, looking at the PDF ratio can account for things like, you know, airway pressure and PEEP and all the other things because, you know, a patient with a P to F on a certain oxygenation um, but can be on a PEEP of 8 or a PEEP of 20, you can't really see that on just a straightforward P to F ratio. So sure. it's just another way to capture um, the severity of patient illness. Yeah, I like the oxygenation index. Are you guys using that or are you just using straight P to F, Jay? Uh, we're using straight P to F ratio. And, and so, so I have a trauma patient who's in the unit has gone into ARDS, and and you know, let's say PDF is now a hundred, and I'm at least let's say I'm maxed out on CMV. Uh, would that be ECMO next step? Should I switch to APRV? Call you guys yeah. early? Call you guys late? So I think the answer is always call early. Um, 
it's better to do this in a non-emergent way than in the emergent way. Um, and I think it really depends on the practice of your institution. As I said, we use a lot of APRV, so we would switch to APRV relatively early on if we think they have uh, x-ray findings that are would be beneficial of APRV. We'll also do a lot of proning early. So we're relatively aggressive in nature like in things of that nature, but at the same time, you know, once, as I said, you know, we'll use a P1 of about 30 and FO2 is 60% and contemplating proning is where we sort of try to get people thinking about ECMO and getting us called early because, you know, what we don't want to do is we don't want to be called a 38 over 0, 100% and the patient's prone with us out of 70, you know. So uh, early is always better. Okay, and now obviously you guys are doing this for patients in your center. Uh, are, are you getting called for transfers from other centers? And, and if so, are you going out and cannulating them there and bringing them back on ECMO, or are you just transferring them and cannulating them at your institution? A little bit of both. We have gotten a number of calls from uh, outlying hospitals for trauma patients who they think need ECMO. And it really depends on the patient. Uh, we we don't have a formal um, transport team per se. We have done it uh, sort of on the fly on a number of occasions for a multitude of reasons. Um, we have elected not to, to formalize that process. Um, we've been relatively – the way our state is set up, it, we are usually able to get patients here relatively quickly. Um, so for the most part, it's easier to just try to get them here for us to cannulate them here. But we have done it on occasion. Uh, how about it always just you, Dave? Yeah, so we're actually um, we we do get referrals from outside hospitals, and and then they typically we we try to get them here. I think it's always best and safest if you can cannulate in your own institution. Um, we are currently in the process of, of developing a transport program to be able to go out and retrieve patients. I think that um, for VV ECMO, it's it's a little more straightforward because um, most of it the time it's all just percutaneous access. I think one of the biggest hang-ups, and, and you, Matt, you know our state, it's it's pretty rural um, with the exception of the really the western side of the state. And so um, it's vast distances, and we uh, sometimes it's hard to get patients to our center. So the need for a transport program is, is, really, is really there. I think because we sort of sit between multiple states, there are some issues about licensure across state lines and figuring out how to get emergency privileging in, in hospitals if you're going to go in and try to do a procedure. So I think it's always easiest if we, just like Jay said, if we can get the calls early. And we've really had a, made a concerted effort to kind of blast all the hospitals with information about, hey, we're, we're available. Please call and call early. And, you know, our, our hope really is that, you know, there are other interventions that can be done so that the patient doesn't have to progress to go on to ECMO. Um, and then leave them in their home institution. But if they're going to, if we want them to be moved, they need to be moved early. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things. You know, it's one of those things that the more you do it, the more people know about it, and over time the word sort of spreads. So you, you end up starting to get a lot of calls. But there's probably also a bunch of medical things that you know people don't want to do, like um, paralyzing patients and things of that nature that a lot of us are just sort of inherently against. But you know, it falls into this algorithm, and sometimes that can really be the bridge to getting them to the center that they can get cannulated. In. Sure. Dave, did you have a question? I'm just wondering about the logistics of, uh, you know, specifically for trauma patients. It seems like time is of such an essence in these folks. And how do you mobilize down to, to a trauma bay or do you move the patient to your unit or how exactly does that 
what does it look like if somebody comes in that needs it? Uh, so for us in Baltimore, we will cannulate almost anywhere. So we've cannulated in the admitting area. We've cannulated in the operating room. <laughs> Um, in the admitting area? <laughs> yeah, well, we have a separate admitting area from the emergency room, so it's a little different than most hospitals. We have uh, trauma. We have 10 trauma bays that admit patients that all can function as operating rooms, so it's a little unique here. Uh, but we've, we've um, cannulated in the ICU, or sometimes if we have the luxury of moving the patient up to the LRU and cannulating there, we've done that as well. Um, so it really is patient-dependent. And so in our program, we, we sort of made a conscious decision that, um, so we're, we're, it's a pretty multidisciplinary program, so we offer the treatment wherever the patient is. And so if it's a trauma patient, we'll cannulate in the trauma unit. If it's a patient up in the cardiac unit, we'll go to the cardiac unit. And if they need to go to the OR, we'll go to the OR. If they're in the MICU, we cannulate in the, you know, in the, wherever the patient happens to be. Uh, we do have a large resuscitation room in our surgical ICU uh, where we often will move patients who might be post-op but requires significant ongoing resuscitation or they're being moved from the ED. And so just because of the space, that is where we've designated to do our percutaneous cannulation uh, because it's, it's, just, it's a large area and we can get a lot of procedures done in there. So, and actually, I really like, Jay, what you said about the pneumonectomy patients. I, I think that's a great indication for ECMO, and exactly like you said, if you're doing a pneumonectomy, I think you should be thinking about ECMO, you know, if you want to maximize your chances of survival. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, Dave, we had some experience with that uh, uh, in the battlefield, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, 2010. Uh, I think, you know, he was really one of the first VV ECMO patients, um, and he's been reported, there have been case reports in the, a case report in the literature from that particular instance. But yeah, it was an immediate tra trauma pneumonectomy, and the trauma surgeons clearly identified the patient with immediate uh, heart failure and uh, and was really hypoxic, and uh, we were able to mobilize a team out of out of Ramstein, Germany, which is the team I was a part of, and they were able to get down there, and, uh, and uh, they were able to cannulate him, and he had a great outcome. And, and he was uh, cannulated in Afghanistan, right? He was cannulated in, in Afghanistan. That's right, yeah, and then uh, managed for a, a period of time in, in uh, Regensburg, Germany, which is one of our, it was a partner institution of ours, and then ultimately once he was decannulated, um, went back on to uh, to receive more definitive care for back in the States uh, and uh, made a really phenomenal recovery. And we've, since then, uh, at least while I was still on part of that team in Europe, um, we had about another 12 10, 12 patients that were cannulated um, successfully in the field in Afghanistan, um, and you know it's 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 percutaneous Seldinger technique. It's it's really a skill that any surgeon can learn, and quite frankly, any intensivist. And that is really where the field is moving toward is is that you know historically some places are still relying on cardiac surgeons to to be the folks who place these cannulas. But it is certainly within the domain of a well-trained uh, general surgeon who's done, you know, surgical critical care training, or EM critical care, or anesthesia critical care. And um, there are many places around the world where surgeons are not really even involved um, in VV ECMO. Yeah, for for us here, all the trauma patients are cannulated by a number of the trauma surgeons. Um, uh, there's a number of non-trauma uh, non-surgeons who have also cannulated. Like I have cannulated a number of patients. You know, our practice here is always to have a surgeon, um, but you know, there's 
two people working on it at the same time. Um, the cardiac, the non-trauma patients that cardiac surgeons are doing for the most part, but as Dave said, I know a bunch of people around the country that the intensivists are doing the cannulations um, themselves. So, Jay, what kind of survival would you say you guys are seeing with trauma pneumonectomies who get put on ECMO? Because non-ECMO, you know, survival has been reported to be at 20, 30 percent tops. I would have to go back to our data. Um, we've probably had uh, – it's still a single-digit number of uh, total patients in the last 10 years I can remember. I think it's about 50% at least, okay. you know, the 50 to 75%, it, to the point that, as I said, it is in our algorithm. We we, we wouldn't even consider doing a pneumonectomy without putting them on VV ECMO. Uh, but I think our survival is about 50%. Okay. And then – and then to close out the patient selection and indication, so who's the patient that needs VA ECMO? So, you know, how do you decide that? Do you, do you look at EF? Yeah, what so. What measures do you look at that tells you, okay, this patient needs VA? Yeah, so if they are basically, um, if they have, if, so if they have biventricular failure, so left ventricle, right ventricle are both out, and they're in severe cardiogenic shock, and you basically have them on maximal pressors and inotropes, and maybe you even have a balloon pump in them, um, you're pretty much, that is the, that's the ideal patient, so long as they don't have some, you know, other comorbid condition that precludes them, so like a terminal malignancy, or if they've got severe aortic stenosis, or something where, you know, because you've got all this retrograde flow, um, you're going to create a, a, you're going to solve one problem, but create a new one. And so I think biventricular failure, it's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, post MI uh, cardiogenic shock. Um, you know, if, if they if you pretty much max out your pressors and they've got a really depressed EF, so um, that's the typical patient that we would that we would offer therapy. It could and it might even be you know we're a heart transplant center, so we've got a heart failure program, and they you know these patients are you know might have chronic heart failure, and this may be an acute on chronic problem. We've had a number of those just in the last. Um, six weeks where they've just had decompensated failure. The other the other patients that we're putting on VA ECMO for the non-trauma are the massive PEs. Um, so we, our cardiac surgery group is very aggressive of putting those people on VA ECMO uh, for a couple of days and then doing a pneumonectomy. So it's another yeah. patient population. Yeah. And for trauma, the only ones that we sort of all agreed upon are the ones that have direct cardiac injury, you know, from a stab wound of sort are the ones that will we think would benefit from VA ECMO in a, in a pure trauma patient. Sure. Yeah. And, and so you said for massive PE, they're putting them on ECMO and then doing a pneumonectomy? I'm sorry, a pulmonary embolectomy. Sorry. Oh, oh. Okay. Embolectomy, yeah. <laughs> I well, yeah, I guess that, and then I guess the other big population which is growing is the ECMO-supported CPR. And so I guess that would be the, the one other big category uh, of patients who have refractory cardiac arrest. Um, and you suspect to have some form of ability to recover, um, might be placed on VA ECMO uh, awaiting cardiac recovery. Okay, let's let's real quickly talk about the data. Um, and why don't we say, I think the data has evolved a lot just like ECMO has. So, so pre-CSER, my gestalt is there was some randomized trials that showed no benefit. Would, would that be a generally true statement, Dave? Or Jay? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, I mean, so the there've basically been, you know, three major studies before Caesar, um, and they each had just terrible survival in each group. You know, ten percent in the control and and experimental arm, up to maybe probably the best studies were maybe fifty percent survival, which is still not great. And they were comparing what to what exactly in terms of the patients? 
So each one was different. Um, again, this was in the age when everybody was still going on veno arterial, at least the initial studies, there was just veno arterial support. And so that was VA ECMO for respiratory failure, and they were using conventional therapy. So the problem is if you look back in the initial studies in the late 70s, that we were still doing, you know, standard 10 to 12 cc tidal volumes and just, you know, really non-ARDS net, nearly not current standard of care. Uh, and so they, they were just bad outcomes in both groups. And the other issue is the, the systems were not as slick as they are today. They're, they weren't using impeller rotary systems. They were using roller pumps and just basically a legacy of the, of the operating room and even these really high levels of anticoagulation. So the bleeding complications were just ridiculous with, you know, one to two liters of blood loss a day having to be replaced where today, you know, I don't know what, in, probably in Jay's unit, you, you know, you may get, one unit of blood transfused during an entire two-week run or something like that, whereas opposed to giving two liters a day. And that data really hasn't gotten better until 2008 when the new technology kind of came around. And then uh, how about then Caesar? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Caesar, Jay? Uh, Caesar trial was a trial in the U.K., which uh, essentially what they were looking at is uh, respiratory failure. Um, they used the Murray score for uh, inclusion criteria. They had a very strict age criteria. I think it was between 18 and 65, and a duration of the event uh, no more than seven days. And what they were really looking at was um, whether they kept the patient in the outlying hospital or they were referred to a tertiary ECMO center. And not everybody who got referred to the tertiary care center actually went on ECMO. It was it was transfer for evaluation. And I think about two-thirds of the patients actually ended up going on ECMO that were referred. The other patients, you know, either just because they were in a tertiary care did better or, you know, obviously some did not survive just because of their underlying illness. Um, and the survival of those who are on ECMO, I think, was in the, the 60-plus percent. And basically, the study showed that, you know, patients should be at least referred to a tertiary ECMO center for evaluation. And that, in 2010, was really one of the big studies that sort of got this whole adult VV ECMO thing stimulated. It was also at the same time as the H1N1 uh, phenomenon that was going on. So it was a very timely study for um, what was going on in the world. And so, so that was a mixed patient population, is that right? This wasn't just surgical, it definitely wasn't just trauma patients. Uh, I'd have to go back and specifically yeah. look at it. Yeah, that, that's right. And then, you know, and there were a lot, there were lots of criticisms of the trial because of some of the, you know, it was a hard trial to do. It was a very difficult trial to do. But, um, based on those criticisms, uh, you know, people are still not completely convinced about it. Um, there's a, another trial that's trying to fix all of the issues with the last trial, which is called the EOLA trial, which is going to, it's a, it's still a European study, um, and they're supposed to be releasing that data. I, my understanding is by the end of this year, um, that data should be released, uh, which I think will hopefully be confirmatory. So, so the message though from, from Caesar is, is get them get them to a ECMO capable place and and most of them will go on ECMO and and what was the what was the uh benefit that Caesar showed there was a mortality benefit so uh, an absolute those, mortality benefit yeah okay, for great. the patients that were referred to the center and then and then just uh, to close out the data what's what's the data specifically now on trauma patients and 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 in general would you would they kind of do they have better outcomes with ECMO, or they do worse than you know the non-selected patient populations? So the literature out there, and probably between Dave and I, we can quote or you know 
do most of it. You know, there's a couple of studies out there. Um, the problem is there's no randomized control study, at least that I know of, in trauma patients. It is uh, the two that I am familiar with are one compared a trauma center that did ECMO to a trauma center that didn't do ECMO, and they said the patients that we put on ECMO when they sort of tried to equate the two, did better. And then there was another study that used historical controls and also said, you know, when we put these patients on ECMO, they did better. Uh, I'm not sure we'll ever get a randomized trial. Dave, I'm not sure if you're familiar with other big trials. Those are the sort of two that I remember. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And I think that, you know, what they're, if I recall, it's about a 60% survival, you know, based on just sort of comparison between the two centers. Um, you know, the, we, we, published a case series um, from the military. Now, that's a very select population of otherwise young, healthy people without comorbid conditions, and we had a 90% survival, but very small numbers, very healthy group who were clearly going to recover. Um, and so I think the data is still really all over the place. Um, the largest study is out of uh, Germany, and they reported that they, I think they can get about 85% of the trauma. These are strictly trauma patients. About 85% of the patients could come off of ECMO, and then of that group, um, 80% survived. And that's sort of the metrics that we look at is the first question is, can you survive your ECMO run? And then are you actually going to leave the hospital alive and neurologically intact? And so in the best data, and that was about um, 50 patients in that series, it was about an 80% survival, which is pretty good. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. All right, uh, Dave, so, Morris. Yeah, yeah, quick question. Um, you know, my my – my exposure to ECMO has largely been limited to sort of getting the emergency general surgery consult for a patient on ECMO who then has a complication. And it seems like it wasn't that uncommon where they would get bowel ischemia or limb ischemia or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about what the complication rates are and specifically um, things like that, like bowel ischemia or uh, limb perfusion or amputation problems? For for us, obviously, VA ECMO has a much higher ble- probably probably bleeding and infection are the two number one complications in ECMO. VA ECMO uh, has a higher bleeding just because you need to run them at a higher anticoagulation level. Um, we've had a couple of patients that have some have had some limb ischemia due to massive pressor knees due to their underlying problem. Uh, I don't think it's the ECMO per se at least for VV. Uh, we've had a couple limb problems with VA ECMO and distal perfusion. Um, but I we have not seen bowel ischemia for patients that are on VV ECMO. Um, I don't know about you, Dave, your experience. Yeah, we haven't really seen bowel ischemia, and I suspect it's probably not related to ECMO, uh, but probably their underlying, just like Jason, their underlying conditions. We have had a number of cases on VA support where we've had limb ischemia, and that's just because you know you've got this large you know 19 French catheter sitting in the femoral artery, and uh, you're you're going to obstruct distal perfusion. So uh, what we've done is by uh, our policy, every every patient who's put on VA ECMO percutaneously has to have an anti-grade catheter. So basically, it's just a, a little bit larger. We use like a seven seven to nine French, uh, essentially a cordis cat, uh, introducer, and we just place that integrates so that you get some distal perfusion and that just hooks off hooks into the side port of the ECMO cannula and provides just enough uh support that you get um you know a nice warm limb and we've had not uh we've had had no complications uh with limb ischemia since then. 
Yeah, we have, we have the same practice that they put some sort of distal perfusion cannula in. And as a quick follow-up, um, how long can you keep somebody on ECMO before you have to start thinking about um, max, it's maxed out and it didn't work or it did work or well, you know, when that, you take them off? That is a, a very good question. Uh, so I don't think there's an answer to that question. I think it is patient-specific. Uh, um, we have had – so trauma patients, I'd have to go back, but we've had trauma patients on for over two months. Um, Prior to the LRU opening up, we had a trauma patient on for over 100 days that actually ended up going to lung transplant. Uh, we just had a non-trauma patient that was on ECMO for about 150 days. So I think it's very patient-specific. Um, you know, when it's only their lungs are failing and they're otherwise neurologically intact and they're writing to you, I think people are more willing to keep going. Obviously, if patients are neurologically devastated and multi-system organ failure, it makes it a lot easier. So I, I don't, you know, we here do not have a cutoff. So uh, obviously, one of the big complications I think everybody has in mind with ECMO is bleeding. Um, so what's the what's the risk of bleeding complications with modern ECMO, and and where do you worry about it most? I mean, is this spontaneous? Brain bleeding? Or are you bleeding from other sites? Uh, I don't know, Dave. You want to talk about your experience? Sure. I mean, so I think um, so. It's still the number one complication, and almost every patient's going to have some bleeding complication at some point. I think if um, typically it's going to be right around the cannulation site, uh, and it's rare for us to see spontaneous bleeding. Um, we've we've had a few ischemic, um, you know, brain infarcts, but we've not really seen spontaneous hemorrhage there. And, and and the anticoagulation schemes, uh, you know, we we actually use relatively low um, levels of heparin, partially because the the cannulas are are bonded with uh, heparin, and we just uh, don't really see significant clotting uh, occurring. And so we we try to tend to to run them lower. And I think if you look across the country and, and really internationally, people are really trying to drive down the levels of anticoagulation. And, and in some places, you know, for VV ECMO, there are places that will essentially run them almost heparin-free. And I think for the active, you know, for the early trauma patient who might have a intraparenchymal hemorrhage or a subarachnoid and they have ARDS, and there's several of these in the literature that have been published, is you can run them heparin-free for, you know, at least in the literature, three to five to seven days uh, without much of concern. And then once they have a stable head CT, and it's been, you know, 24, 48 hours, and everyone feels comf comfortable to start anticoagulating them, you just start it again. And uh, that, that's, that's a part of our protocol um, for, the, for the bleeding trauma patient. I don't know, Jay, what do, what do you guys do? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so most of our bleeding ends up being sort of like mucosal bleeding for a reason or another. Um, we have not, I don't recall any spontaneously intracerebral hemorrhage patients that were on ECMO. And yeah, the, so the VV ECMO patient, our, our algorithm is we run most people at a PTT of 45 to 55, uh, but we can run patients for days without heparin. Um, for us, intracranial hemorrhage is not a contra, it's not an absolute contraindication um, for VV ECMO, and we have a, a practice guideline that we follow here for patients with uh, intracranial hemorrhage that we need to anticoagulate. You know, we we have a practice of you know. Anticoagulation level, serial head CTs, and things of that nature. Um, 
but most of our bleeding ends up being mucosal bleeding or uh, bleeding at cannula site. So, so that leads me to this. I'll, I'll give you guys two patients, one for Jay and one for Dave. So, Jay, you've got a guy who car crash, bilateral pulmonary contusions that are horrible, some intracranial subarachnoid and a small subdural hemorrhage and needs to go on ECMO. So would you put that guy right on ECMO? Do you have a time period, you know, from the initial injury that you'll wait until you put him on ECMO, worrying about the head bleeds, or do you just put him right on ECMO? So I think it depends on how bad their pulmonary injury is and to some degree what their neurological status is. Um, to some degree, it also depends on their age. Obviously, a younger person with a brain injury will be a little more aggressive. Um, uh, but we would put that patient on if we needed to and just not use any heparin. Um, okay, so you would put them on and do heparin free. Yeah. All right, and Dave, same same guy, no brain bleed though. He's got a grade four liver lack that's being managed non-operatively, and he's day two, and you know decompensates respiratory standpoint. You think you need to put him on ECMO? Yeah. So, so I I think we would we'd go ahead and do it, and we wouldn't anticoagulate him for you so know just, a day or two. So just no heparin, and, and yep. then and then resume it. Yeah. And and have you have you seen any bleeding complications from from patients who have an existing solid organ injury or a brain bleed that you've put on ECMO? You know, I personally have not, and I haven't really found that it's if it's out there, it's not published, um, or I've or I've missed it. I don't know, Jay. Have you yeah, seen any I'm, of that? I'm, uh, no, I'm trying to think. You know, the reality is the trauma patients we have are usually so smashed up they got multiple excesses on they have an open abdomen you know so it's uh usually pretty easy to see if they're bleeding but i can't think of someone who had had a solid organ injury that was managed non-operatively that subsequently bled on ecmo and um, you mentioned you mentioned age are you using the the caesar cutoff you know above 65 or would you put them on ecmo or are you pretty much avoiding elderly patients so for our medical 65 is sort of our cutoff uh, for trauma, it really depends, you know, patient, you know, most of these, it's, it's dependent. We we have the number there in our inclusion and exclusion criteria, but at the end, uh, at the bottom of each one of those, it's bedside physician discretion. So none of our uh, exclusions are absolute, um, or at least not for at least age. So it's a patient-by-patient it's a patient case. Obviously, the older they are, uh, the less likely they're going to do well. Yeah, although with the trends that using that hard age cutoff would rule out seventy or eighty percent of our patient population, I think. Yeah, How that's about you, true. Dave? Yeah, yeah, I mean similar. So it's on a case by case basis, and again, we have a relative contraindication. We just call it elderly, and like we didn't we didn't want to put a number there uh, because I think it really does depend, especially on their functional status. You know, if they if you know if they were really functional, um, high performing people before they you know had this insult, then we're not going to deny them therapy. So the couple of exclusion criteria that we, you know, we sort of stand by are if you're on O2 before your injury, so, you know, and if you need ECMO, the likelihood of you doing well is probably low. Uh, we've tended away from Jehovah's Witness if they're not going to take blood. Um, oh, yeah. It's uh, cirrhotic. If you've got bad cirrhosis, obviously, you know, those patients don't do well uh, in general, so yeah, needing yeah. ECMO. And the other thing we want to make sure is that they don't have abdominal compartment syndrome before we put them on ECMO. So, um Try to make sure they don't have that. All right. Well, uh, Dave, any other final questions? 
Just one quick one, maybe. Um, how do you go about credentialing people that are not cardiac surgeons? And is that an issue? You know, yeah, so I just decided to start doing it. Uh, I yeah, so so it's a it's a great question. Um, so ELSA, which is the extracorporeal life support organization, they actually put out a white paper, a position statement, a few years ago because all these centers are starting and everyone's really interested in doing this, and it seems that there's a signal that this is really going to work in adults. Um, so they gave some criteria, um, it's sort of a bit loose. So we just established our program not long ago, and they were, these were all novice, you know, fully credentialed faculty in surgery and anesthesia and, and in medicine. And um, it was, we just set up a proctoring program, and we were very deliberate with how we were going to do it. You know, very few of us had experience, and so just really meant being on call a lot um, to be able to proctor folks through the procedure using simulation and, and at least doing some formal didactic training and then the hands-on, there's, there's all different ways of doing it. You, if you can get proctored in the OR by um, faculty who've got experience, uh, if the surgeons or the cardiac surgeons are willing to take you through it, we're partnering with folks who pass wires all the time, whether that's vascular surgeons, interventional radiologists, folks in the cath lab, if they're willing to take that on because I'm sure that their workload is so high already that they don't want to take on another task you can partner with them to kind of get the wire skills that are necessary. And beyond that, uh, then it just goes to your, you know, whatever your professional board is to be able to sign you off. And that's how we approached it. Yeah, for us, um, there are two of the trauma surgeons. One's actually a trained cardiothoracic vascular surgeon, and the other is a trauma surgeon. They are the ones that do uh, all of the trauma-related cannulations. Um, and we here sort of, since there, somebody's always around, we have, unless it's an emergent situation, we have not credentialed non-surgeons to do it. Um, we are in the process of, you know, getting uh, some training stuff with actually a cannulation mannequin to try to get some more of the surgeons actually credentialed. Um, but uh, currently, there's two people, at least in this trauma side, that are credentialed to do it. So. Yeah, and, and then that's a great question, and I think there's two pieces to it, and, and I think what you just talked about is the technical piece of cannulation, but then I think the more important piece is actually running and managing the ECMO. And so how do you get, how do you get expertise in that? Um, the running part of it is really you just need to spend time in the ICU with people who know what they're doing, and that's how I learned it. You know, I, I learned it in fellowship. I learned it sort of on the job, and eight or nine years after working in cardiac surgery, it just sort of, you know, you know how to do it. Um, so I think from that standpoint, it's really just spending some time. We had somebody last year that did an ECMO fellowship here. Uh, basically, they spent a year between my unit and the cardiac surgery ICU learning how to take care of VV and VA ECMO patients. Um, and I think that's really the best way to do it. How about you, Dave? So yeah, you that's how we. Yeah, so that's exactly how we did it. Is uh, you know I came with with experience, and uh, we hand selected faculty in surgery and in some of the other subspecialties, and uh, they would be assigned patients, and we would basically co-manage the patients, and I uh, proctor them and kind of work have them basically go through a, a series of patients and uh, some didactic work, and it's just through experience. And so we've set targets for, you know, th this is how many patients you need to basically be managing before we're willing to um, submit for credentialing in that area. 
and uh, and that's and then we have continuous quarterly simulation labs, and we've got a phenomenal simulation center where we can run through the medical management, especially because if you if you're coming on only every other week or so and taking care of these patients, and they don't come that frequently, um, how do you maintain currency? We run them through uh, simulations with you know every conceivable disaster, whether it's air in the system or and the machine spontaneously shuts down. You've got a bleeding complication, or you've got you know whatever it might be, so that we can run them through the emergency procedures. Uh, and I think the other key component is that you're not really doing this alone. You have really highly trained, at least in our program, we've got really highly trained uh, nurse specialists who are running the machine from minute to minute. And um, and there's just constant coordination and communication with uh, with the surgeons. And and there's a bunch of these ECMO courses popping up that I'm seeing all the time now. And you know, go for a weekend or or go for a week. Uh, would you recommend that you know somebody somebody let's say like me, you know, fellowship trained but doesn't really do it, but they're starting an ECMO program and I want to participate. Uh, you know, it would be a good thing to go take one of these courses. And and, and is there a preferred course? I think there. I think as a as a novice learner, I think that um, going to one of these courses is great. I think that doing the probably the week long didactic courses. I mean, it takes time, but they're pretty well run. I'm not going to say one course is better than another, but um, I think it's a good place to start, at least to get some familiarization with the physiology and just sort of the overall ideas about how to manage these patients. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, hey, Dave. Any uh, final questions? No, no, that was, that was great. Thank you. All right. Well, well, guys, that was fantastic. Um, I really learned a lot uh, about ECMO. I, I think our listeners will love this. And uh, we'll just close. And, and any any final points you want to make about ECMO or, or, you know, what you see happening with ECMO over the next five to ten years? We'll start with you, Dave. Well, I think that this is, you know, there are still so many unanswered questions about how to – how to use ECMO. We're still asking questions about patient selection, um, general management, nutrition, um, long-term outcomes, functional outcomes. So I think if it's someone who's, you know, right now in training, um, this is a, I would highly encourage if you are in a place that does ECMO that you should just see if you can, you know, spend a few weeks or part of a rotation there. And I think that it's really here to stay this time. And you know, I think this is sort of the golden age of, of adult ECMO, which is really upon us. And so this is going to become part of standard practice, whether, you know, the same way that where people have to understand CRT and ventilators, this is just going to be yet another tool. Yeah, I totally, yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, this is getting out there in the community. People know about it. People are calling for referrals um, and they're calling earlier. And, you know, as Dave said, you know, if people who are lucky enough to be in a, in a place that has this, people should really come by and, and learn how to do it. Um, because the more you do it, the more you understand. And, you know, nobody knows everything, but um, the more you do it, the better it will be. And as Dave said, there are so many unanswered questions that um, this is just the infancy, I think, of what ECMO is going to become. Okay. Well, uh, again, I want to really thank our guests, uh, Dave Zonis from OHSU, Jay Meneker uh, from Baltimore Shock Trauma, uh, and my co-moderator, Dave Morris uh, from Intermountain in Utah. And uh, with that, we will sign off. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website, 
at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Thank you.